This sermon was preached by Bob G. and Sarah, head pastor of Grace and Truth in Hartsdale, New York. Grace and Truth was planted in 2002 and is seeking to reach North Yonkers and Westchester County. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gntchurch.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Our sermon today will be continuing in chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 17. Let's hear the Word of God, verse 17. And and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside and On the way, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. And the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What what do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my hand, right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom the Father, for whom has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, Listen, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, O powerful living God, we ask that you please... Uh, grant us, O Lord God, illumination and uh, wisdom and insight into your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would make the word alive and, and teach us um, what you would have us to know. I ask, O Holy Spirit, that you would please uh, help me and anoint me and touch me, use me as a vessel of honor, overshadow me as I preach your word. Um, may your anointing flow through my speech and that it wouldn't be me speaking, but you to the people. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd also open the ears and the hearts of everyone here today, Lord, for those uh, of us whose hearts are hardened and minds are darkened or our ears are clogged with spiritual wax. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us um, hearts to, to he- receive, ears to hear, eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We live in a celebrity culture, and most of you are probably well aware of that living in the United States of America. We are obsessed with celebrities. Um, In any day, you could look on Yahoo's news site or you can look on CNN, um, and as you're scrolling down, you'll see that, yes, Brexit took place. You'll find out about the election, and more than likely, there's going to be something about Kim Kardashian or Taylor Swift in there as if that is on the equal level of news of whatever else is going on in the world today. It may be say that also in this uh, celebrity-obsessed culture, whether it is uh, those celebrities and icons in our own social 
um, culture or from abroad. Um, these may be the modern-day equivalents of the pagan pantheons of Greece and Rome. Uh, one of the ancient mythical uh, beings that was well-known in the ancient world was uh, Narcissus. Uh, Narcissus was the son of Cephasus. He was the river god of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And uh, Narcissus, as the story goes, um, was one day by the river and he looked at his reflection. And when he saw his reflection, he was so enamored that he fell in love with the reflection, not realizing it was just a reflection of himself. But he was so enamored and fell so in love that he never moved and he stared at that reflection till he died. And so therefore we know that that is the root of the the term narcissistic, people that are utterly in love with themselves and so wrapped up in themselves. And uh, this is the culture we live in. And sadly, this celebrity culture has crept into the church as well. Uh, go to any Christian news source. It's an interesting thing. I, I, I read the Christian Post just about every day. And we have our celebrity pastors. They're the pastors who have big mega churches and they got names that everybody knows and uh, it's an interesting thing because they'll preach a sermon and they'll say something like, uh, they'll make a statement like, anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus will go to hell. And that'll make news on the Christian post. Pastor so-and-so from such-and-such church said that, in other words, it was nothing, un, it was nothing that was new or, or, or exciting or something so far different or far-fetched. It's something that any pastor, I'm using this as an example, that any pastor in any church on any given day will preach. But because they're a celebrity pastor, it makes the news on the Christian Post. I find it very entertaining as such. But we also, in our own way, want to be celebrities, don't we? Welcome to the land of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where anybody can become an instant celebrity. At any time, a post that you put or something you say can go viral and you can become a worldwide sensation. This obsession drives people to add as many followers and friends. Some even have competitions, such as on Twitter. There's these competitions of who has the most followers. Um, people And people feed on this. Their egos feed on it. Like, like if they don't have enough friends, they, they feel insecure. People actually, there's actually studies done on this where people uh, um, feed on this kind of attention on social media. If they don't get enough likes or enough comments on their posts, they get depressed. You, you don't believe, people are laughing, but this is true. Um, and what is Facebook and Twitter? What, what it really is is a shrine to self, isn't it? Isn't it really a nice little shrine? You put the very best picture you could find of yourself, right? I dare you to just go home and put the absolute worst picture of yourself on your Facebook or Twitter account, right? You put the absolute best picture. I mean, all of the great achievements that you and your family, listen, I'm guilty of this to some extent too, right? But it's a shrine to self. Your posts and you want to put some pithy comments and, and you want to attract attention and it's all driven by this ego, you see, I think in the end of the day, we all, to some extent, are narcissistic and ego-driven. We all want people to admire us. We all want people to think how great we are. It's an innate part of our human nature. right? When Adam and Eve ate that fruit, what was the temptation? The day you eat of it, you will be like God. At the basis of eating the fruit, the forbidden fruit, was the desire to be like God, was the desire to be great, was the desire to be admired, was the desire to be loved. It was the fall of Satan, because Satan wanted to be God, and it was the fall of humanity. 
And so therefore, it's a result, we are ambitious. People want greatness. They want people to admire them, to love them, to exalt in them. And we use, and some people who are crafty and clever enough will obtain enough money and power are free to express the fullness of their egocentricity and narcissism. However, for many of us, that's limited by our poverty and impotence. Nevertheless, in today's sermon, this brings us to the topic of greatness. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be a great one? There's nothing wrong with being great, but it's Jesus' definition of greatness that counts that we're going to be looking at today. You see, we're coming to this point where where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, okay? He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he tells his disciples in verses 17 through 19 that he is going to be crucified, that he is going to be delivered over. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be killed, but on the third day he'll rise in. This is the third time Jesus predicted his passion to his disciples. And I have to believe that each time it goes right over their heads. Why? Because they always respond in a very contradictory way right afterwards. Jesus made it very clear and very explicit his purpose for going to Jerusalem. And what happens on the heels of that? Well, they're walking together and Salome, who happens to be the mother of James and John, who also happens to be the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes up to Jesus to make a special request. It says in verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. What an amazing request, right? Lord, and she gets on her knees. She's very humble, very respectful. Now think about this, right? In the human, in the human element, she's Jesus' aunt, right? So she's got some inside information, an inside relationship. James and John are his cousins. He was just preaching about the kingdom of God. And what did he say earlier in chapter 20? He promised the disciples that they would one day sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, that was clearly right before that we had just looked at recently. Okay? So within that context, they figure, hey, if we're going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, why not jockey for position? They get their mother to convince Jesus to work it out for him, and uh, they may not like his response. You see the problem with the disciples, the problem with Salome, the problem with James, the problem with John, and uh, and consequently the problem with all the disciples, because they get angry. They don't get it. They're clearly not getting Jesus' teaching. And I think the same thing is with us. Why do you come to church every week? Why do you come to hear preaching every week? Why do you read your Bibles every week? Because you know what? We're humans. We're stubborn. We don't get it sometimes, do we? God repeats himself over and over and over. And just when you think you've got it, you've lost it again. You need a reminder. We need reminders constantly. Our sinful nature, it's like gravity. You know, gravity just pulls you down. And and if you just let up for a moment, sin nature will bring you down. We constantly need to be reminded, be reminded, be reminded of what God's vision, what God's kingdom is, and what God's will is for our lives. So let's, in our sermon today, 
look at Jesus correcting these attitudes, these self-serving attitudes, and teach us what true greatness is. First of all, the disciples have a false understanding of what greatness is. They have a false understanding of what greatness is. Jesus addresses John and Jane's mother, and um, we could look at that. Verse 22, he answered, You do not know what you are asking. <laughs> very, very easy way. You have no idea what you're asking for, woman. You have no idea what you're asking for. And then he follows that up. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? You is plural there. He's referring to James and John, in which they respond. They said to him, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it was prepared by my Father. It's an amazing testimony of Jesus' own recognition of his submission to the will of the Father, that Jesus takes no independent prerogative apart from the Father, that anything, any place, any position to anyone that's given is a prerogative of God the Father and Jesus humbly submits to that. This is not some position that you can jockey for. But in the end of the day, Salome and her two sons had many false presuppositions that undergirded their request. Number one, they had a false concept of the kingdom. They clearly did not get what Jesus was teaching them about the first being last and the last being first. This theme, it goes back to early in chapter 20. In chapter 19, the rich young ruler wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus teaches them that in order to truly receive the kingdom, that you have to give away everything. You have to lose your life in order to gain it. That the value system of the kingdom of God and the value system of the world are direct opposites. It's like, it's like a mirror image of each other. So what seems like the way to success and greatness here in this world is actually the, the road to failure in God's eyes. The road of failure here in this world's view is the road to success in God's eyes. The first will be last and the last will be first. And what were the disciples trying to do here, James and John? They wanted to be first. They were missing the point. Jesus said earlier to them, anyone who seeks to enter the kingdom of God must become like little children. Little children don't see, well, maybe in that culture, but today kids always try to make themselves first, don't they? A false understanding also they had of their relationship. Salome's sister was Mary. Again, she probably thought that based on her relationship, that this would give her a special privilege with John and James. Surely he's going to listen to me. And by the way, this is probably a good reproof on, on those of the Marian doctrine. Um, in Roman Catholicism, the view is that if we pray to Mary, that Mary will ask Jesus... And Jesus will do a favor for Mary and in turn do the favor for you. You know, there's no special favors here. We go directly to God through Jesus Christ. We don't need Mary to intercede. We don't need saints to intercede. We go directly to God through Jesus Christ. But the real issue really and ultimately was a false view and wrong idea of what greatness is. Like most people in the world then and now, people believe greatness is about having a position of prominence. It's about being exalted. That greatness is about being loved and admired and having power and having money and having status. And they didn't get it. C.J. Mahaney notes this, and I quote, The prideful desires of their hearts are on full display. There is nothing subtle about their request. 
They're not asking for faith to endure his suffering. They're not asking for the privilege of supporting him and through his suffering. No, they want to become famous, pure and simple. James and John have defined greatness as position, power, and they want the title. They want the respect, acclaim, and the importance. In their pride-dominated hearts, Jesus is just a means to the end of personal exaltation. And by the way, the other disciples are not exempt, right? They got indignant, the Bible says. They were indignant at this. But they were not indignant because James and John were acting in selfish pride. They were indignant because they were jealous. They themselves wanted a position. How many of us use Jesus as a means simply to our own end of personal exaltation? Think about that. How many of us use Jesus as a means to accomplish our own greatness, our own desires, our own will, our own popularity, our own fame, our own greatness? It's a misuse of the gospel and it's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. It's hard to imagine that the disciples would argue over such matters. In fact, it wasn't the first time they did so. It showed their own sinfulness and pride, which we all struggle with. This is something common to all of us. While it's easy to look down on them, if we're honest with ourselves, we've done the same thing. So what's Jesus' response? What's Jesus' response? Well, it's important to note that Jesus does not condemn them for pursuing grace. You know, the Lord always responds with grace to the disciples. He never chides them. He never puts them down. But he responds with grace. And rather than condemning them, he redefines and redirects them in regards to what true greatness is. What they needed was what is called a paradigm shift. They needed to see things differently. They need to understand what true greatness is. And then there's no problem with desiring greatness. All right. So the first thing he says to him, verse 23 He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but is prepared, but is for those for whom has been prepared by my father. When the ten heard it, they were indignant of the two brothers. And Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. And it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The first thing they need to realize is that the pathway to true greatness is the path of suffering. When Jesus asked them, are you able to drink from the same cup as I? This is a very important question, and it's tied directly to Jesus' passion, which he predicted. You see, the cup is a reference to the cup of God's wrath and divine judgment. It's a metaphor associated with judgment of sin. Um, go back to Jeremiah twenty-five fifteen and hear what the word says. In Jeremiah twenty-five fifteen, it says, Thus says the Lord, the Lord God of Israel, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword then I am sending on them. Revelation 14, verse 9 through 10, the cup of God's wrath is also used metaphorically. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, 
If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, pulled full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The cup, or this cup of wine, is metaphoric and symbolic of the wrath of God. When Jesus was in Gethsemane praying, he says, Father, Father, if it's possible that this cup would pass for me. Jesus knew what was going to happen. The cup that he was going to drink was going to be the cup of God's wrath. When Jesus went to the cross to die, he wasn't simply going to be murdered or executed by human beings. He was going to be in our place as our sin bearer and endure the wrath of Almighty God. He was going to drink down the wine of God's wrath for every sinner who has put their trust in Jesus Christ and he's going to drink it down to the last drop. He was going to bear God's wrath and absorb it in our place. That was the cup he was about to drink. This was not about Chardonnay. This was not about uh, um, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. This is about the wrath of God. This was the cup he was going to drink. So when he says to him, you don't know what you're asking, what he's really saying is the, the path to my exaltation, the path to glory for the Son of God is to drink the cup of God's wrath. It's suffering is paving the road to glory for Jesus. And if you want to be great, then the path to glory is not going to be the same cup that Jesus drinks, but the cup of suffering. The path of greatness is the path of suffering. And Jesus informs them they would indeed drink from the cup. James would become the first martyr in the early church. Acts 12 records it. And John later would be exiled to Patmos for a long time and be subject to cruel and harsh torture in Rome. All the other apostles there would likewise find themselves suffering for the sake of the kingdom. And that's the point here, guys. You want to be great? You want to be a big person? You want to be a big shot? True greatness in the kingdom doesn't come without a cost. You see, many people are deceived about Christianity and think that somehow becoming a Christian is a means to personal glory and exaltation. We're deceived by the prosperity theology that so infected the churches in America that we think becoming a Christian is just a means to get wealth and health and success. Jesus never promised that. Being a follower of Jesus means walking in his footsteps. If the road to glory for Jesus of Nazareth was the cross, it will be no less for us. For what did Jesus say? The servant is not above his master. How do we suffer? We suffer in a variety of ways. Acts 14.22 tells us through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Right? Jesus talks about that narrow road. Right? Suffering comes basically in two major ways. Persecution. Right? If you truly follow Christ, all those who who walk a godly life in Christ Jesus, will suffer persecution. That is a fact. And if you are following the word of God, if you're living a life of obedience and you're, you're living a life of righteousness, people are not going to like you. People are going to dislike you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to ostracize you. They're not going to want to be your friends. They're going to talk about you at the water cooler at work. When you put something on Facebook, you get to get a lot of nasty remarks. 
Some people lose their jobs. In other countries, people die for their faith. We truly don't know what it is to pay the price of being a Christian in this country. Suffering could come in other ways. Following a life of Christ brings with it a life of suffering. Why? Because the ways of God are hard. And what do I mean by that? When you follow God, sometimes you're called to live a life that goes against the grain of the way everything is. Sometimes you're in a marriage that's difficult and God is calling you to be faithful and to stick it out and that's not easy. Sometimes you have kids who are wayward and you've got to love them and be patient and long-suffering and pray long nights and hard nights for them and that's not easy. That's a, that brings about suffering. There are times when we're going to get sick. Christians get sick. That's a fact. No one is immune from sickness. We're not super people. People get sick. But God gives us the grace to go through that suffering. Because in that suffering, we're drawn closer to God. Secondly, true greatness is defined by serving. So one shift away. True greatness is a the path to true greatness is through suffering. Probably not something that the disciples wanted to hear. And it's probably not something we want to hear today. The second thing is true greatness is defined by serving. All right, The disciples had obviously been influenced by worldly notions of greatness and were misled in their ambitions. And Jesus aims to correct that. He says what true greatness is not. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So he uses that term, their great ones. Well, who is he referring to? Well, he's referring to the Gentiles, particularly the Romans, who were occupying Jerusalem, much to the anger of the Jews. Rome was in power in much of the Western world at this point, and it exerted its power, not through humility, not through kindness, but by, by brutal militaristic power. Rome didn't conquer the world with kindness. They conquered the world with a sword. And so people in that day of age saw greatness as the world defined it, through military conquest and power. That's what it means to lord over. To lord over means to control people, to, to threaten people, to intimidate people, to force people to do what you want because you can. We see that the titles of great ones throughout ancient history, Alexander the Great, Constantine the Great. In Jesus' time, the great ones were the Caesars. And the Caesars believed they were gods. The Caesars were truly the great ones. And they exercised lordship. They demanded obedience, subservience, and loyalty. They were despots. And they were served hand and foot. A Caesar never did any work or labor, broke a sweat. Everything was done for them. They were indulgers of sensuality, of pleasure, of gluttony. They never would go out of their way to help a common person or an average person. They would never leave Rome to one of their outposts for nothing but to receive worship and glory from other subjects. They had loyalists in all their provinces governing for them, ready to say how high when the emperor said jump. That was the way greatness was understood. And they were thinking that Jesus was about to establish a worldly kingdom. And they say, hey, if Jesus is going to put this kingdom and he's going to go out there with the sword and strike everyone down, I want to be number one and I want to be number two. And Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you, and here's where it gets 
this is this is amazing. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever must would be first among you must be your slave. That's radical language. I mean, I could just see the disciples being like, "What? What did he just say?" You mean in order to be great? I, I mean, the word slave there, doulos, is a very specific word. It was the lowest rung on the social ladder in the ancient world. Slaves were nobodies. They were property of other people. They had no rights. They had. They could not express their opinion. They. Nobody did nothing for them. They lived and existed for one purpose: to serve other people. And they were it's their duty. They were told they must serve. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, then you need to be like a slave. You need to be a slave. That's radical. You see, it goes back to this. Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. Becoming great in the kingdom is not like it is in this world. Being great in the kingdom is defined by humility. You see, humility doesn't exert oneself to demand to get one's way or insist on one's rights. But humility lays one's life down to serve all and be the slave of all. You know, humility is not thinking low of yourself. Humility is simply just not thinking of yourself. It's putting others ahead of yourself. And that is something (laughs) that doesn't come natural, does it? None of us are born with a disposition that puts others ahead of ourselves. We are all born with a disposition with a me-first mentality. And you last. Pride comes naturally. Humility can only be cultivated in a heart that's been born again where the Spirit of Christ resides. You see, this was a radical notion Jesus was putting to them. And it's no more outrageous and hard to grasp then as it is now. People today still mock and think such an approach to life is dim-witted. But this is the way of Christ. It flies in the face of everything you've been taught about greatness. The world teaches greatness as being motivated by self-exaltation, self-interest at the expense of other people. Get ahead. Get a big degree. Make as much money. Make sure you get everybody to, to do what you want. Control people. That's greatness. And do it at the expense of other people. Whereas Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, serve other people and seek the good and benefit of other people ahead of yourself at your expense. That's very radical. But this is what true greatness is. The truly greatest people in the kingdom of God are the people who serve at the lowest and do the things that nobody else wants to do. It's the people who exalt others ahead of themselves. Those are the true great ones. Certainly not the celebrity pastors and celebrity people that we look to. Well, who's the ultimate example of this? Verse 28, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. You see, Jesus didn't ask anything that he couldn't do or wouldn't do himself. Jesus gives us the perfect example of what true greatness is. Is 
He served his mother and family. Just think of all those years that Joseph was died, where Joseph, after Joseph died, where he labored as a carpenter. He provided for his mother. He provided for his brothers and sisters. He was one who constantly put everyone in his family ahead of himself. He served in his public ministry, the poor, the sick, the needy, and the afflicted. I mean, day after day after day, Jesus never said, listen, guys, I need a vacation. I need to go to the Dead Sea and get a spot treatment. Jesus labored vociferously day after day, serving people, feeding people, healing people, casting out demons. And then at night he would go pray all night. And then he'd come back and he'd teach his disciples. And then he'd go out and heal. The man was constantly serving other people. Who can argue that Jesus is not the greatest man that ever lived? Is not Jesus the greatest man who ever lived? And yet he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, that's the more important part. He, he didn't just give of himself. He gave his life. He literally died for us. And he gave his life. He gave everything as a ransom for many. The word ransom there is a price that's paid to set people free from bondage. And we all, all of us, like sinners, sinners by nature, sinners by birth, were enslaved to sins. Slaves to sin, slaves to death, slaves to the devil. And Jesus died to set us free. He paid the price to ransom us. That's something that should amaze us. And so it's important to note that Jesus' death not only serves as an example. Listen to this. It doesn't only serve as an example for the ultimate form of humility and service, but it is the basis of our Christian service. You see, apart from Jesus' death on the cross, there is no Christian service. C.J. Mahaney, again, quoting on this passage, says this, Jesus alone came to give his life as a ransom for sins of many, and this separates him from other sacrificial service that anyone else, anywhere, could ever offer. Here we find what is completely and utterly categorically unique about the Savior and his example. And in true humility, our own service to others is always both an effect of his unique sacrifice and evidence of it. His sacrifice alone makes it possible for us to achieve and experience true greatness in God's eyes. And so we see that Jesus' death is not only the ultimate example of sacrifice, but it's the source of it. You cannot truly serve God, you cannot truly serve others, unless you have been united to Christ by faith and the work of the cross has been made real to your heart. Amen? True greatness in the kingdom of God is then nothing less than following in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's self-abasing, self-sacrificing service. So how do we practically apply this? Well, two main ways. Number one, we must serve God. When God sets us free from bondage of sin and darkness, we become indebted now to serve the Lord with cheerful hearts. 
You see, service to God is bound up in nature. By nature, we were created to serve God. That was what we were created for. But since the fall, we've been corrupted and perverted. And so instead of serving God, what do we serve? Idols. We serve false gods. We serve, and ultimately, the chief idol is self. You see, we're religious by nature. And by nature, we're either going to serve God or we're going to serve idols. Jesus put it clearly. You either serve God or you serve mammon. And so we have to come to terms with what is our service? What is our expected duty to God? Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 to 13 says this, And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good? Serving God with all your heart and all your soul is fearing Him. It's walking in His ways. It's obeying Him. It's loving Him. It's called covenant fidelity. Because at the center of it is a relationship with God. It means to walk with the Lord and be faithful what we do. It means that we serve Him because we love Him. Serving God is not a burden, it's not a duty, but if we've been set free, if we've been ransomed, if Christ died for your sins, then it's a joy and it's a delight to serve God. You see, we were created for the purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And when we live to glorify Him, to make Him known and make Him look great, then we truly find self-fulfillment in this life. If the core of your ambition in life is to serve yourself, you will always be empty. You'll always be lost. You'll never be happy. Again, as I said, the reason why we don't serve God the way we should is because we're serving false gods. An idol is anything you love or have a passion for more than God. Anything that you're devoted to anything that you're passionate about, anything that you're consumed with more than God, is an idol. I think some people here have love affairs with their Facebook account more than God. You read your Facebook account more than the Bible. You're looking to see what people are responding to your Facebook page more than to see what God is thinking about you. God is a jealous God. And he does not like when we have rivals. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The New Testament warns us that those who, who harbor idols, those who are idolaters, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And John warns us in his last words in 1 John, little children, flee idols. Idols will lead you to death. Idols will lead you to spiritual death. And if you're an idolater right now, if you're putting anything else in your life above God, you need to repent of it. You need to put it away and serve God and serve Him alone. And secondly, we're to serve God with gladness. Psalm 102 says there says to serve the Lord with gladness. There are many who serve God merely out of duty. I have to do this. I have to come to church today. Oh. I have to give money in the plate. Oh, I have to read my Bible today. Oh, really? Jesus went to that cross. He didn't go to that cross and go, oh, I have to go to the cross for you. Oh, 
He went to that cross because he loved you. He loved me. And he embraced that cross so that you and I could be free. How could we ever see anything? How could our hearts be hardened to such a point to feel any duty or obligation to God is a burden? Serving God is not drudgery or painstaking misery. It's something we do with hearts full of gratitude. If you're serving God with drudgery, it's because you haven't truly understood the gospel. And you haven't truly understood what Jesus has done for you. Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48, God warns the children of Israel. He says, he says to them, you did not serve the Lord God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of all the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lack of everything. And he'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he's destroyed you. That's a warning. If you won't serve God with joyfulness and gladness, then he'll give you over and let you serve your enemy. That's frightening. You see, at the end of the day, you're going to serve someone. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve an idol or God will give you over to serve your enemy. I've seen many people, idolatry leaves them, creeps them away from God. They eventually sin and sin themselves out of the church and away from the kingdom. And then they're serving Satan full time. Secondly, serving others. If we've come to believe in the gospel and the power of Christ's death and have been freed then we should come to the realization to serve others the way Jesus served us. Why? Because we have an accurate view of ourselves, an accurate view of God. Therefore, we'll have an accurate view of how to treat others. The point here today is to serve others in godly fear and humility. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to flesh, but through love serve one another. Serve my brothers and sisters. Serve your family first and foremost. Husbands, serve your wives. Wives, serve your husbands. If you got that, I ain't serving nobody. Let them serve me. You got it wrong. Husbands, serve your wives. Wives, serve your husbands. Serve your children, parents. Children, serve your parents. Serve in the church. It's sad sometimes where the hardest thing to do is to get people to volunteer their time and to serve in these aspects of ministry. I feel sometimes like it's pulling teeth and begging people why we should be glad and joyful to serve one another in the body of Christ. You know, two good things about a servant. I was a servant at one time, literally. I was a waiter in a restaurant. See, now they don't call them waiters no more. They call them servers. Or, I guess, server, servant. Maybe to be gender neutral, I don't know. But, in any case, when I was a server, I understood the concept of serving people's needs in the restaurant as a waiter, server. One of the key things I was taught in the restaurant business, for years I worked in the restaurant business, is a good waiter is one who anticipates the need before someone asks. Don't you hate when you're in a restaurant and your cup is there empty for like 20 minutes? You're like, look, and like 10 waiters and busboys walk by and you're thirsty and you got to beg people for a glass of water. Doesn't that drive you nuts? Yeah, I see some chuckles there. It drives me nuts. 
I was taught that as a good server, a good waiter, you look, you scan that dining room, and the first time you see a cup of water, I worked in very upscale restaurants when I was young, halfway full, you go over and fill it immediately. I worked in restaurants where if you didn't do that, you got fired. It wasn't Cheesecake Factory, that's for sure. Yeah, you guys know about that one, right? God calls us to serve sacrificially. Not just when it's convenient, but when it's inconvenient. See, Jesus' sacrifice was inconvenient. And true service to other people should always be, well, not always, but it's not just a matter of convenience. It should be inconvenient. That's what serving is all about. Well, let me conclude by saying this. The disciples wanted to be great in the kingdom. But their concept of greatness was utterly skewed. And Jesus corrected them. And they would indeed go on to be great in the kingdom. Every one of them. In our day of the celebrity culture, reality TV and social media, I think we have a very false idea of what greatness is. But in the kingdom of God, and I think Jesus puts a very good picture of greatness here. I think we got it. True greatness is through suffering, and true greatness is through service. And if we can embrace those two things in our life, we'll truly be great in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for your time today. Lord, humble our hearts that we would receive. And Lord, I pray for each and every person here today, God, that we would truly aspire to be great ones in the kingdom, to be great servants, to be great... um, humble people who love you to put you first who put others ahead of ourselves and don't merely think of ourselves and exalt in ourselves god help to exterminate that pride in us may the gospel may the power of the cross just melt that pride in our hearts and fill us with a sense of awe and love and appreciation and humility for you for your work on the cross for us we love you jesus and we lift this up in your name amen Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.